Hello, everyone. This is the Patanjali class. It's the third class. We're doing the commentaries of Swami Kriyananda on Swami Kriyananda on Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. We're actually class number three. We're up to Sutra number three. Um, however, and I'm actually recording this the morning after that third class, because the way the class, uh, the scheduling of the class on the Tuesday night turned out to be the Tuesday after Easter. Tuesday after Easter in the year 2013. And on Easter, Swami Kriyananda sent to us a letter, uh, an Easter greeting, that was very deep and very interesting and also really quite subtle. And when I started uh, to talk about the sutra, about 10 or 15 minutes into the class, I also started drawing parallels between what the sutra was telling us and what Swami Kriyananda had told us in his Easter letter, And then I ended up really spending the rest of the class talking about Swami's Easter letter and the spiritual implications of it and so on. So it actually really fit into the curriculum, but it was a bit of a tangent. And afterwards I realized that not everyone who's going to hear the recording or see this video had the letter in front of them, or even the people who had read it. It seemed to me like it would be worthwhile to have that letter in mind before you watch or listen to this class. So what I'm going to do right now, quite simply, is read to you the letter that Swami Kriyananda sent us as a greeting on Easter 2013. Then this class is going to start over again with what I recorded at at the class time. And then about 15 minutes into it, it'll start talking about this letter of Swamiji's, and then you'll have it clearly in mind. Okay. Swamiji writes to us, Dear ones, I wish I could bless each and every one of you with a happy Easter. Easter is a time symbolizing the eventual resurrection of our little individual selves into the one infinite self. I suggest at this time particularly that you study and meditate on the photograph of Master titled The Last Smile and consider this amazing fact. He knew that in just a few moments, he would be leaving his physical body forever. There is no thought of self in his eyes, of personal regret, of sorrow, clearly visible in his eyes and in his facial expression, is his unconditional love for all mankind, his readiness to return again and again, as he put it, as long as one stray brother sits weeping by the wayside. Such love for ego-centered humanity is not even conceivable. And this was the love Jesus, too, felt for all humanity. People weep for him and his suffering on the cross. His suffering was only for humanity that blindly rejects God's love and substitutes for it vengefulness and hatred. I have been going through a personal Armageddon. Nothing in this world attracts me anymore. Nothing at all holds any pleasant memories. None of those experiences, whether interpersonal or outward in any way, holds the slightest attraction for me. Must I really live another five years as has been predicted for me? I confess 
The very idea appalls me. I have done so much in my life to please God. The very hallmark of my nature has been enthusiasm, even though I've been always aware that I could never really accomplish anything significant in this world. Suddenly now, I feel bereft of that enthusiasm. Maybe it's because my heart feels tired, very tired. I want only to merge in God. The only lingering thought is that I would like to bring all of you with me. No, I am far from tired of you. I want only your freedom in God. But no, your worldly attachments, identities, and desires, I have to confess, mean simply nothing to me, as my own mean nothing to me. No, this doesn't mean I love you less. I love you much more. For I love that part of you which is eternally real. But whether I succeed or fail in my projects is to me meaningless. All the things I once considered pleasurable are to me now displeasing. I want nothing that this world has to offer. People tell me I am famous. That phrase to me also is meaningless. People often marvel at all I have been able to accomplish in this life. To me, it all seems only dust. If we must resurrect our souls, let it be from the delusion that anything in this cosmic dream holds some worthwhile reality for us. We are children of God. That is our soul reality. Love, Swami. So, there it is. I wanted you to have it so that later in this same hour when we begin to talk about it, you'll understand that to which we are referring. God bless you. Any uh, questions from last week? Tom pointed out that we're, we've now done the two sutras that we all know. <laughs> now we come to the practice of yoga, and yoga is the neutralization of the vortices of feeling. So now we're on to new turf for almost all of us. And Patanjali, did I gather that no one had comments? Um, true to form, true to his reputation, or at least the reputation that some of us have for him, he immediately jumps to something that we have to try to understand what the sequence is here, because there is a sequence. So, now we come to the practice of yoga, once we understand the lack of fulfillment of the world and what Vedanta is and what we're seeking, we can begin to find the method in order to go there. And then he defines for us what our goal is, which is the neutralization of all these vrittis. And I put all that up on the board last time with the little point in the center and all the energy flowing around it and all that happens. And say, once we have neutralized the vrittis, then spiritually free, the sage abides tranquilly in his inner self. Well done. done. Yeah, so what is the rest of the book? I don't know. Stay tuned. We'll see. (laughs) I mean, in a sense, it's true. But he's, this is Samadhi Pada. This is the book about cosmic consciousness. There are other books, too. There's four books here, but this is the one describing the state of Samadhi.
But what he's also telling us in the way that this book has so much power, which is that you, you get these little openings and then you have to go into them, is that if you can neutralize the vrittis, if you can dissolve those center points of egoic self-definition around which all your energy swirls, if you can just dissolve those, then, it says, you are spiritually free and that you can rest peacefully in the inner self. Because the only thing that's keeping you from resting spiritually in the inner self is these points of egoic identification and all the energies that we build up around that commitment, which I'm presuming that you've heard the class last week, so I don't have to redefine it. Once we dissolve that, then automatically our energy goes into a place of complete tranquility. We've, we've become free. And it's, um, it's so succinctly stated, but it's stated that way so that, that we, have, we're not, we don't make any mistake here. You see, there's, there's nothing else to acquire if we just cease to have our energy and our feelings circulating around those egoically defined self-identifications then all the energy automatically goes back to its place of rest in the inner self. Um, It's an important... um, uh, What I want to say is like an intuitive perception because otherwise we're always trying to push ourselves into what we think is the state of consciousness we're supposed to be in. And we have this constant feeling that where we're going is someplace outside of ourselves that we have to try to reach for Whereas, in fact, all we have to do is let go of what prevents us, and then, spiritually free, we automatically go to a place of tranquil west, 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 rest in the inner self. Okay, so I mean, that's the sequence that he's trying to show us here. Um, and then Swami begins to talk to us about why we have such a hard time letting go of those ideas. He says, modern life leads us to confuse fulfillment with excitement. That we think that the more, you know, you, you see all the ads and how more, more and more frenzied everyone is. And even nowadays, it's like um, you can't, as someone once said, the problem with speed is that you get used to a certain speed and it never, never, doesn't feel fast anymore. And in order to feel the equal sense of excitement, you have to go faster. And sort of what's been happening in our society as sort of a, a moral standards completely disintegrate, spiritual um, principles are thrown out the window, and living in the now is understood meaning living for the pleasure of the moment. It's, it's just all of that has become just uh, f- frantically intensified. I saw a movie, not too, a movie pr- preview or a trailer not too long ago, and it had just a, a horrifically violent scene in it with, a, with an individual person just screaming in absolute terror and pain. I mean, it just flashed across for a second before I did the movie mantra, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which I do. I mean, I don't, I don't go to movies very often, and when I go to previews, I do a lot of the movie mantra. But just for a second, while it flashed across, I thought, why would anybody put that in front of people. And why would anybody want to go see that? 
And just, you know, it's become so common that you don't even really think about it because people have confused fulfillment with excitement. The more exciting, the more terrifying. I mean, it makes me sort of terrified even just to vaguely remember it. Once, just an interesting story. We used to go to movies um, with Swamiji from Ananda village. There wasn't much else to do. Sometimes we'd have these very paradoxical times. We'd have an extremely inspiring weekend or event. And then afterwards, just to relax, you know, we'd all go into town for dinner and a movie. So sometimes on, after very spiritual holidays, we'd find ourselves sitting in the movie theaters. And we often walked out of movies. Swamiji had no hesitation if it was clearly going to be a bummer. We'd just walk out. Um, Kalyani was particularly good at getting her money back. (laughs) 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 Or else we'd just walk out. Oh, she was very forceful. Um, But one time, it was at least one, it might have even been a double feature of really, really awful movies with a lot of uh, um, sadism in them, you know, real real evil. And Swami had to sit through the whole movie. And I kept looking at him, you know, come on, aren't we going to leave? And then afterwards, I mean, I don't know, it could have been just for me, but afterwards he said every once in a while it's good to just watch something like that and just um, be detached from it, you know, not be frightened. I failed, utterly failed. <laughs> Even to this day, scenes from that movie still haunt me. And I, I, mean, I still practice not being terrified by seeing them. But most of the time, of course, we never would do such a thing. There was one very good movie. It might have been the same time. It was The House of Orange. It was, about, it was a true story about Dutch resistance fighters against the Nazis. But it had some really scary scenes in it, too. But I remember sitting in that movie also with Swami. But that was a true story of heroism. So even though it was scary, there was a redeeming quality. But I remember sitting there, and then the word went down the line, breathe. You know? <laughs> We're all just sitting there like that. We're so... Um, but the end of all that is just recently, just having been exposed for a split second to something I would never expose myself to, I thought, what a strange culture just how really strange we've confused fulfillment with excitement what a great time it was wow you're on the edge of your seat you know all these things from excitement however ensues tension and tension causes all happiness to vanish it's just it's a very interesting sequence isn't it swami is explaining to us why we can't rest tranquilly in the inner self because we're always moving out from there thinking that we can't possibly be having a good time unless it's really noisy. And um, I remember, I've, I've shared with you once, I went with some friends to a, 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 a new restaurant that opened in town, very expensive restaurant, and it was almost unbearably noisy. Oh, I said, what a shame, they're going to have to redesign the whole place. <laughs> and I wondered how they could be so smart and be so stupid. And the man I was with looked at me. He said, this is on purpose, Asha. This gives people the feeling that it's really a happening place because it's deafening. Confuses fulfillment with excitement. Excitement, however, causes tension. It's really very interesting to watch that. Now, we, I'll come, the word sleep comes in in a later vritti, so I won't go there yet. Okay. But he also says that that kind of excitement, listen to his words, shatters the nerves and fills people with suppressed fears that emerge 
with the exhaustion that follows. Now, isn't that the sequence that people go through? They, they, they wind themselves up, either with drink or with drugs or with loud music or with sensual stimulation or with crazy excitement, one way or another, okay? And then they become, because it makes you so nervous, you become exhausted afterwards, or you just, you become so spent. And then, of course, when we get exhausted, suppressed fears, which is the fear that, you know, I'm not really lovable, the fear that I'm drinking too much, the fear that I don't really have proper work, that I'm not really a good person, the fear that the person that I'm desperately in love with is not going to love me back. Just a thousand fears, because none of them are eased by living so outside of ourselves. It's just we become more and more identified with the periphery of our being, and the farther we are at the periphery of our being, the less actual stable strength we have. But that whole cycle, for many people, for many years, even if they're not debauched, nonetheless, they never go to rest in the tranquility of the inner self. It's always creating another vritti and another vritti and another vritti to just keep moving all the time. I mean, Patanjali is... It's extremely radical. You know, it, just, it doesn't lead us to a kind of moderate business-as-usual kind of life. He just ex- explains without any equivocation the exact consequences of living in a way that is not in harmony with ourselves. So, I mean, that, that concept of suppressed fear was what interested me so much because I'm, I know, I remember Swamiji once was talking about... Um, Oh, he was somewhere where people were talking about how to, you have to love yourself, you have to accept yourself, and those sorts of phrases which people use a lot. And there's a, you know, a certain truth in it. Swami is not very sympathetic to it, but there's a way to sort of find a certain reality in it. But Swami said so simply once, the only way to completely accept yourself, he said, is to have a clear conscience. And I thought, well, that was so simple and true, isn't it? As long as you're behaving in a way that you know is wrong, you're always going to be Subject to suppressed fears, aren't you? You're always going to be trying to persuade yourself that what you're doing is okay. And then you're going to be working really hard to accept yourself. But the only way to be at peace is to have a clear conscience. Now, to have a clear conscience doesn't mean you have to live like a monk, necessarily. But you have to live by high principles and not shatter your nervous system by thinking that as long as you're excited, you're having a good time. I know uh, one of the teenagers asked one of the adults in our community um, about recreational, as they're called, drugs, you know, smoking marijuana or drinking beer or something. He said, you know, if we, how much is too much? And the adult answered very wisely. He said, when you're having a really good time and you say to each other, this would be more fun if we were stoned. <laughs> Meaning, if your very definition of enjoying yourself requires that you have to keep pushing it. If you've lost the capacity just to find enjoyment in your own natural being. That's the question of pushing it farther and farther. It's a very... Now, each of us in our own lives sort of watch that. You know, watch all the things that we want to do and how quickly we get bored and how much we want to stimulate it again. It doesn't mean we can't be active. Um, But this is a different... He's talking about something different here. 
And then he says, you know, calmness is the only possible foundation for any lasting fulfillment and happiness. He says the most important thing is to silence the demands of the ego because we can never feel really calm when the ego, as he puts it, is clamoring for attention. Um, I remember when I was 18 or 19 years old and I was given the book by by Swami Vivekananda, which was my real um, shifting reality. And one of the uh, aphorisms that he had in there was, if you don't think about yourself, you'll be happy. And quite apart from the wisdom of that, it had never occurred to me not to think about myself. (laughs) And I don't mean that I was selfish, because I wasn't particularly, but I was definitely preoccupied with myself just constantly preoccupied with myself. The way I put it, I was always calculating my own advantage. My own advantage was whatever I particularly wanted at that time, and often what I wanted, truthfully, was a generous or not such a bad... It wasn't like I was evil, but nonetheless, I was always aware of my own position in any situation, whether I was getting what I wanted, whether I was enjoying myself, uh, whether I was getting attention... Um, what I was going to do next. It was just always thinking about my own likes and dislikes in every situation. As I said, being a relatively refined person, often my likes were rather refined, but nonetheless, my preoccupation was always with myself. And when I heard him say the clamoring for attention, I was remembering, in fact, it it was a principle with me, always to choose that which I would enjoy the most. I was remembering... This morning, when I first started living at Ananda Village, um, my mentor really was Seva, who at that time uh, had a position of uh, responsibility for almost the whole community. And she and I became extremely close, and for the first almost 10 years that I was there, we were just constantly together. And she was 12 years older than me and really took me in hand. And in that constant company was always redirecting me. Seva was a very straightforward, serious, focused person. She, Swamiji said she was the first person at Ananda who actually um, understood the concept that we had to work there. <laughs> I mean, Jyotish was actually there, so she wasn't really the first, but she really understood that we had to work, that we weren't just going to sit there and this was going to happen from nowhere. So she started, she gave her, got herself an office, and she would show up every day at 9 o'clock, and she would work from 9 to 5. You know, she, would, she would actually work. So I ended up with a job in the publications business, and I was supposed to work from 9 to 5, too, next to her. And I clearly remember this day. I think it was a day because it was a turning point for me. I got up as usual, and I even walked across the hill with Seva, as I always did, to go to work at 9 o'clock. But for some reason, I had to separate from her instead of going straight to the office. And I finally got to work at 4 in the afternoon. And for me, it had been a more or less straight line from when I'd left home. (laughs) And Seva, she didn't say anything to me except, good morning. (laughs) But something penetrated that that somehow or another, my what-do-I-want-to-do-next way of living, uh, maximizing my own enjoyment of wherever situation I was in, somehow it wasn't quite the highest way to live. And from that point, I started disciplining myself. Actually, I just started disciplining myself to her. Just whatever, she, whatever. I, I started joking. I said, look, 
if I told Seva that I would go to town with her and do her laundry and I got a message that Babaji was at the meditation retreat, I'd go with Seva to do her laundry. <laughs> it was like I had to keep my word to her. That was where my um, relinquishment of self-preoccupation was coming from because she was always she was always Dharma. She was always Seva. And because of her presence in my life, I always had to come back to center like this. You know, it, was a, it was, of course, a great gift to have that satsang. And by the grace of God, thank God, I woke up to it and realized what was really at stake here. But when he said that, the, the ego stopped shouting for attention. We have to understand how subtly the ego shouts for attention. It doesn't shout for attention necessarily because, again, nobody thinking of me. I was a very enthusiastic, generous, serviceful person. But the, the center point of all my consideration was myself. Egoic, you might say. It's, you know, egotistical is one thing, egoic is another reality. My ego, which is the, the main vritti that ran my life, was, what do I want? How can I have fun? What would be the most enjoyable thing for me to do? And that's the way that the ego clamors for attention. It always wants the decisions to be made according to the vrittis that it's established about what the value is, whatever the center value is. And you can never be calm in that situation because calmness is a quality uh, that has to transcend the ego's likes and dislikes. If the ego's likes and dislikes are always being evaluated, this is what Swami writes here, you know, the only way to have true happiness is to be in the still center. If you're always oscillating on the this is my favorite and this is not my favorite and then this is my favorite and this is not my favorite... If the ego is always clamoring to, uh, clamoring to have its way, then it never stops. The vritti, the, 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 the energy never flows in a smooth line. It always whirls around, whatever it is. So only when the vrittis have been neutralized, then, spiritually free, the sage can abide tranquilly in the inner self. And that's what we have to, to simply look for. So Swamiji says, the most important thing on the spiritual path is to silence the demands of the ego. And then he says, therefore, in my own life, there are two things I simply refuse to do, to pray for myself or to defend myself. Now, those are very serious and interesting thoughts. Uh, pardon me? Yeah. yeah. To, or to defend myself. Um, when you're, It was very complicated in the... Uh, when he was being sued <laughs> about defending himself, and it got the nuances got very subtle, and he was in fact a pretty terrible witness for our side. <laughs> he, he told the truth, and as he himself said, he, he he consented to do that because more than he alone would be hurt. It was Ananda that was at stake, and a, a large crowd of us had also made Ananda our life. And he, he didn't feel it was fair to allow that whole thing to go down and have us also lose because he wouldn't. So he had to, but he had to think very carefully. But still, he was so unemotional and impersonal when he testified. And that later, and John writes about that in his book, I believe, that there was just no histrionics at all when Swami spoke in the courtroom. He was as centered and as neutral as a person could be and still, and still participate, and which the jury read as um, callous disregard. That they, had no, they had no way of reading it at all. They had no idea. 
even the possibility of what they could be, what they were seeing. And uh, <laughs> at one point, the batteries in Swami's hearing aids went out in the middle of him being cross-examined. And he didn't say anything till later. <laughs> it was a whole leela anyway, so it really didn't matter. But, you know, not, not asking for anything. So him, I went, there, was another, there was another point. Well, he brings it up later, so we'll come to it in a few minutes. But it's, it's a very serious thought when you think about it, when we, you know, at the same time, and this has to be said, even though Swami writes this in here, many years ago, I think I've told you all this, but it's an important story for this. You know, in the context of Ananda, we have two orders. Well, we, now we have three because there's the whole Naya Swami order. But prior to that, there were two um, religious orders. We had the Sevika order, which we called our monastic order at that time, and the Sadika order. The monastic order was people who were living in community who, as we put it, had the karmic freedom to make Ananda the center and sole reality of their life. Sadika members uh, were people who, for one reason or another, didn't live in community or, for one reason or another, had karmic obligations that prevented them from making Ananda the sole and center reality. Um, that's essentially the difference. And usually, you know, the sadhikas just had a lot of other things to take care of. Children, husband, sometimes career. Um, sometimes it would be health issues or just something. That would keep them with uh, needing to relate to many more realities than just Ananda. We work as hard as we can to try to make it kind of neutral, but it's a karmic difference. So Swamiji was visiting us one of the times when he visited, and he was here for a number of days, and he gave satsangs, and he gave a satsang for all the sevaka members, the monastic members, and he gave a satsang for all the sadhaka members. Um, he was more active. He was younger and more active then. And when he was about to, when he was going to give the satsang for the sadhaka members, he said to me, what would you like me to talk about? I said, well, Swamiji, why don't, you know, people are always a little confused about the sevaka and the sadhakas. Why don't you try to talk to people about what it means to be a sadhaka? He said, okay, I'll do that. So we went to the satsang, and Swami starts talking about the absolute state of renunciation in which he lives. Just like this. I never defend myself. I never pray for myself. There's no situation in which I would ask God to take care of me. And he, in this story, he tells us the story of the kidney stones and that he simply wouldn't pray for any relief until he saw that it was going to interfere with the well-being of others. And then he asked Divine Mother to take care of the others, which also resulted in him being freed of that so that he could take care of them. Um, and in, in this evening, in a most touching way, he started talking about being 36 years old and being thrown out of SRF after being a monk for 14 years, being a, a fully professed monk, believing he would spend the rest of his life in that monastic order, uh, being called back from India where he'd been living, abandoned in New York, being $500 in his pocket, riding with his parents across the country, living in their back bedroom over here in Atherton. Just everything had been taken away from him, and he just didn't know what he was going to do. Slowly by slowly, he begins to teach a little bit. He goes to stay at the new Kamaldali's ashram, but he's also having to go to San Francisco to help Haridas, Dr. Haridas Chaudhry with his work and like this. And so his parents were letting him use their car, 
And finally, his parents said, you know, you really need to have a car. It's clearly the life that you're living now. You're going to need to have a car. Why don't we just give you this car? And so they pulled out the pink slip, and they wanted to ride over and give him the car. With tears in his eyes at this satsang, Swami said, I can't begin to tell you how intensely painful it was for me to realize I, I was probably going to have to own that car. You know, and because he'd, he'd given up everything to be a monk when he became master's disciple. Everything, he was nothing. He was going to have nothing anymore. He'd even gone to India where poverty is respected, not like it is in America, but it's respected for a spiritual person. And just that complete freedom. And it was an inner calling. It was not an affectation. Last week when I was trying to talk about being called to be a, a monk or a nun. That, I, that was the word I was looking for. It's, it's a calling. It's not a decision you make with your mind. You feel called to that life. Well, he had been called to that life, and, and it was just so painful to him to have to see where his life had taken him. So, you know, we sort of all went there with him and um, went through the emotions that he had to go through. Then he turns to me, and he says, "Well, Asha, um, have I? Is there anything else that I should talk about?" I said, "Maybe you could talk about the Savika Order." <laughs> Such a idiot. And he just looked right back at me, and said, "That's all I have been talking about." And then he looked at the people in the room, and, and this is how he said, "Don't even think about trying to live the way I live." He said, you could never do it, and it wouldn't even be good for you spiritually to try. He said, you, you have to live at, at, at your own, um, I don't know exactly what word he used, but it was you have to be sincere in your own reality. You can't try to assume someone else's. I mean, he'd explain the whole things by expressing, by, by showing, by his own consciousness, what was possible, but then allowing everyone else to realize, oh, that's not really who I am. Now, that's an extremely challenging way to teach people because many people will feel, oh, that just makes me feel inadequate. But the single most difficult thing on the spiritual path, and we've talked about this many times before, is to sincerely stand. I actually realized the most difficult thing on the spiritual path is humility. Because humility is not self-abnegation. Humility, Master defines, as self-honesty. And humility is a quality that's praised above, you know, many others on the spiritual path. But self-honesty, as a definition of humility, means that one is simply able to perceive oneself as as you actually are and just be humble in that. Recognize that I still have these desires. I'm not capable of renouncing this reality. I couldn't dream of um, living at that level of austerity. It never crossed my mind not to be happy when I was able to buy a car. And it would be a total affectation to pretend I'm not thrilled to have this car. To just have the humility, the self-honesty, just to stand where you're standing and then allow the reality of the situation to define itself. Not the ego clamoring for attention, 
wanting to claim something that it's not. This brings me a little bit to, um, I, I was, if, if it came up, I wanted to talk about it, so I will a little bit. Um, those of you who were here for Easter Sunday or who were on various of the Ananda mailing lists um, received or heard the letter that Swami recently wrote for Easter. And he, he, it's interesting, he talks first about masters depart in that letter. He talked first about master departing from this world, suggesting to us that we look at, the, at his eyes in the last smile and see how completely free he was, just completely free. He was leaving this world, he said, in just a few moments, but all he had in his eyes was love and compassion and not a hint, he said, of self-concern. And then we talk about Jesus and uh, because it being Easter, Swami talks about Jesus and crucifixion and so on like that. And then Swami speaks of himself, because even though I don't believe he's moments away from passing, he's certainly at the end of his life, the predictions are five more years. And he talks about his, he, what he called his own Armageddon. Armageddon meaning the destruction of the world. I mean, that's the end of the world. That's what Armageddon is, is when the forces of light and darkness come at each other. And he just talks about what you would have to call, the, the word in Sanskrit is vairagya. And vairagya is more than detachment. Vairagya is disinclination for this world. And, and vairagya is a, a, a respected bhav. It's a spiritual bhav that people get into and uh, a state of intense vairagya, which is what Swami was describing to us, is that nothing in this world interests him. Even looking back on his life experiences, the way he put it, I don't have any pleasant memories. You have to understand that in the right way. He wasn't saying that his memories are unpleasant. What he was saying is that nothing that about this world, he doesn't long for any of it. Nothing attracts him. And he even says he just doesn't even have any enthusiasm for all the work that he's been doing. Even the idea that he's going to do all this work and save all these people, you know, this intense vairagya sets in. And you realize, you know, it just goes on and on and on. You know, you do a little bit. And he speaks of his own accomplishments as as dust, as he put them. His own fame is meaningless to him. And that the idea of having to live five more years, he used the word, appalls him. Um, but what he's talking about, you have to understand, it's, it's not sadness or negativity. It's, it's a fascinating um, a- exposition of a state of intense vairagya, which when you think about it, you would have to come into. See, we all tend to think that, oh, to be in bliss means that we get to enjoy everything. I mean, we're, we're always defining it in terms of the ego's little story, that we get to, that we get to have more and more of, of our self-definition. When we progress in uh, Patanjali, he talks about Vritti's, our five classifications, painless and painful, you know, right conception and wrong conception. So in, among Vritti's, you know, there's better and worse ones. But yoga is the neutralization of all Vritti's. So there's, there's no point of ego from which to enjoy or experience. Even that becomes um, intensely unattractive to us. And that's what Swami's talking about in that letter. It's, it's all intensely unattractive to him. And 
I, for me, that looking at it, when I, I hear that letter, and I was explaining to some people today and yesterday, when Swamiji does something that contradicts what I think he ought to do, especially when it contradicts what I think he ought to do in terms of the teachings that he taught me, you know? So it's like, it's like he's not living up to what I think he should live up to according to how, how he taught me to evaluate it. There's a piece of me that thinks the chances are really good that it's I who don't have this correct. And then you stand back and you think, well, Master told Swamiji that he would be completely free in this lifetime. You know, which actually means that he had to have been a Jeevan Mukta when he was born. And I recently um, had the opportunity to speak to Swamiji on a very interesting point. Actually, this was a few years ago. Because people, since I've known Swamiji for such a long time, I'm not the only one who has, but because I talk about him and write about him, people will often ask me this question. Because I often describe that the moment Swamiji walked into the room, the first time I saw him, what I experienced was his consciousness. And then his personality presented itself. But there was nothing but his, his person standing there and the consciousness I experienced. And my sense of recognition was based first on that and then everything else followed from that. So it wasn't on personality. And I felt that consciousness to have no boundaries. And I had no idea. As I, I, He was the first person I'd ever met that anything like that had ever expressed itself to me. He was the second saintly person I'd met, but he was the first person like that. And, and from that minute to standing here right now, he, he's always seemed exactly the same to me. He has presented himself extremely differently in those first 25 and 30 years than he has, especially in the last five or 10. The, the presentation of his consciousness now has completely shifted but the consciousness hasn't shifted. And so I said to him, Swamiji, when people ask me if I think you've changed, and I just explained to him what I said to you, I said, do you think that's true? He said, yes. Also, we've, I was talking here, was it last week, about the eternal now? Where was I talking about that? I think that was here. Or maybe it was on Saturday. About when Swami was a, a baby, he would fall asleep by going into super consciousness, and then when he learned Kriya, he went back, as he put it, to exactly the same place he used to go to when he was a child. You know, I mean, you're, you're, these are hints of, of consciousness where, where the presentation of the personality doesn't have anything to do with it. So, um, and Master said many things to him. You know, you will, you will find God, but not till the end of life. And you have lots of work to do. And I, I'll hold, I'll, you, won't have, you won't have the opportunity to leave this world until you really leave this world. But what does that really look like? You know, what, what is that experience really like? So when Swami presents to us this intense vairagya, um, where he's just really pushing away all aspects of this world, I, I want to go and stand where he's standing and feel what that feels like instead of stand where I'm standing and declare what it must be like, or what it means really. Do you see what I mean? And when you stand inside of his awareness, especially when you sort of follow the whole sequence, there was Master, the last smile, you know, just getting ready to say goodbye and having so much compassion, but he was leaving. 
And then also, Swami didn't emphasize it, but the story of Jesus includes the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was weeping tears of blood, is how the story is told. That what was he, what was he so intensely suffering? I mean, it's folly to think he was so worried about the crucifixion that he was going to have to go through. What he was weeping about was the world, people's ego, how, how, how terribly they had responded. And they tell the story of him being taken away and he stands on the hill looking out over the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered thee under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but ye would have it not. And therefore you will have to suffer. He wept for the people he'd come to save who instead had turned on him. I mean, and this is what, I wrote this in my, in my book about Swamiji because it was something that I myself understood deeply. Just because he's impersonal about his own feelings doesn't mean that he doesn't have very intense feelings. In fact, more so because a person of expanded consciousness can feel the reality of this world so deeply. Master wept. He wept when Gyanamata died. He wept when the disciples would leave the path. And, and the other part of it, which is, was very interesting to me, and I, I remembered this conversation from a long time ago, and it was actually, I looked it up, it was 12 years ago. Um, in the path, Swamiji writes, and it's just a very short section, where Sister Gyanamata not Sister Gyanamata, Sister Shraddha, who was a long-time disciple of Master's and often served Master personally. He was talking about how Master became very difficult to please at the end of his life. And he talks about Sister Shraddha standing in the hallway outside Master's room in tears. Nothing I do pleases him, she said. And this is after years of serving him that all of a sudden she can't relate to him in the same way. And Swamiji said, Master repudiated the world very strongly at the end of his life and, and was not easily pleased with what happened around him. You know, he just was very impatient, often very, very impatient. It's interesting because Swamiji is much more... Uh, well, impatient is partly the way to say it. He, he direct and he, he puts up with less than he used to. And I, I joked with, I didn't joke, but I was talking to Shivani or to one of my friends about it, somebody who knows him well. I said, he could have been like this from the start. He could have been very, very brusque, very demanding of us, very exact, very unwilling to sort of give us lots of rope. You know, he could have been that way. He just wasn't. He was always extremely soft-spoken, extremely tolerant, extremely willing to just let things play themselves out. Now he's not. So, you know, we think, is there something wrong with him? Not necessarily. It's just where he's standing right now. He explained it to us once quite simply. He said, I don't have any time now. He said, before I could wait 10 years, you know, I could give you a little bit of a hint of something and then 10 years later say something. I don't have time anymore. He said, what I have to say, I have to say it right now. He also put it, interestingly, he said, bliss makes you very emphatic. (laughs) This interesting statement. Now, all of that, I feel, is intensely relevant to what we're studying here. Because it's a, a, if we're going, if, if we're really going to be liberated, which 
at least that's where we're going. You know, everything about this world has to be of, of no interest to us. We don't keep the good vrittis. We use the good vrittis, and Arthur had asked that question last week, and as far as we get tonight, we'll see. But, you know, the good vrittis help us to raise our energy upward, but sooner or later it all has to be let go. Just every, all identification with all of it has to be let go. And we're not going to let it go if we're still thinking fondly of it. We have to just push it away. So I think Swamiji's letter is just um, thrilling to contemplate and humbling. Just like, whoa, that's really what it looks like when you're really at the end. So let me not fool myself. Let me place myself where I really belong and do as best as I can to have you know, the, the painless vrittis and the right concepts, which Patanjali recommends for us, but then we'll turn a few more pages before we have to get rid of the vrittis altogether. You know, he doesn't say the neutralization of all the bad vrittis and the comfortable relaxing into all the good ones. <laughs> Give Adam the microphone, please. It's under your chair. Okay. Uh-huh. So um, one of the things that Swami has talked about famously is that um, you know, he tells the story of meeting that sage that says you should enjoy nothing. And he said, Master enjoyed everything but with the joy of God. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could help me reconcile that, that has, yeah. with his bhav right now. I left out a piece of it. In that conversation I had with Swamiji about Master and Sister Shraddha, I mean, I talked to Swamiji a little bit about what I'd read about Sister Shraddha. And on the particular day that we were talking, even though it was a dozen years ago, Swami was in a similar bhav to the bhav he's in now which is, I've done enough. I've, you know, I've kind of had it with being here. And he also said, as Master said, I'm going to just say one more thing about Master, then I'll come back and finish exactly this. Remember that Master used to love a song that included the verse, I don't remember what song it was, Come to me as sorrow, Mother, because when you come to me as sorrow, I remember you. I remember you more than I remember you at other times. And Swamiji said, at the last years of Master's life, he wouldn't, listen to that song or sing that verse anymore because he basically said, I've had enough sorrow. And we don't, because the story of Master's life in detail is only a little bit known, there's more of it in John's book, Fight for Religious Freedom, than there is anywhere else of the difficulties Master faced. SRF completely whitewashes them. Swami puts more of them in his biography of Master. He, he shows more how Master had to struggle and the many betrayals that Master had to meet John Parsons in his book, because he's paralleling what Swami had to go through and what Master went through, you have much more of a picture of how Master had to struggle and how many people that he had faith in let him down and or, or actively turned against him over and over again. And your feelings are not less sensitive. They're more sensitive the more expanded your consciousness because you're, you're, you're able to understand all, you can see all the future lives. You can see what the person is condemning themselves to. So you know far more than the average what all of this means. Plus, you know the bliss. And you really know what the potential is. That's, that was, that's why Jesus wept in the garden like that. So when Swami was talking about this, I, I mean, I sort of asked him, you know, well, what about the joy? Oh, he said, underneath there's always the joy. That was his answer. Underneath, there's always the joy. The joy never leaves you. But on the surface of your consciousness, these other realities also play themselves out. Now, 
I'll give you a personal example of, because I can't really speak to it on the level that Swami can speak to it, but I had a very interesting experience at the beginning of my spiritual life, which is in the very first year that I was at Ananda, in my very first Christmas, I had, I had a lot of personal troubles, and I, 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 I took all my emotions very seriously at that time. So personal troubles were a really big deal for me. And I remember the first Christmas, I mean, my, my memory of the first Christmas that I, at Ananda, which was my first Christmas ever because I was Jewish, so I never had Christmas until I came to Ananda. I would tell people for years, you know, you must stay at Ananda Village where we all lived then. You must stay at Ananda Village for Christmas. It doesn't matter if your parents disown you. It doesn't matter if your name is Rockefeller and your parents disown you. Stay at Ananda for Christmas because the bliss of Jesus' presence is like nothing you've ever experienced before. And I had all these pictures in my mind, of, especially this one evening where Swami, where Kalyani, who sang beautifully, was playing a harmonium that had foot pedals, so she was playing it like a piano. And Swami, she and Swamiji were singing together. She had a beautiful soprano voice, and they were singing Christmas carols. And it was such a blissful night. And it was um, kerosene lamps or, or, or propane lamps, so the light was sort of orange and a little dim, and it was snowing. I mean, really, it was perfect. We were just way up in the middle of absolutely nowhere. It was the astral world, 100%. <laughs> seven years later, would it be seven? No, not seven, like 20 years later, maybe. I'm trying to think for just a second. It was after, it seems to me like it was after I was here. So I, I started to say seven years later, but I don't know why it would have been seven, because the memory is when we were living in Palo Alto. It's unimportant. I was talking to someone about Christmas and how you really want to experience it and what bliss it was for me. For the first time, I realized that my angle on that whole Christmas scene was a little peculiar. And, and my visual memory, which is very, I have a very visual memory, it was a little bit of a peculiar angle. And I realized it was because I watched that party I was standing behind the heater. We had this huge, like, gas heater there, and I was standing a little behind it, crying. Not crying for joy. (laughs) Weeping over the enormous dramas that I was personally going through. I had cried through that Christmas Eve. That was what I was actually doing. But the only thing I remembered was bliss. Isn't that weird? It was so weird to me at the time. Wow. And that was when I suddenly realized, oh, you really can. You can really live on two, completely two different levels. That underneath it, there's joy. Now, mine was emotion, and my bliss was hardly, you know, on the level of Swamiji's. But I realized you really can live on all these different levels at the same time, where you're really having an experience of divine rightness on the, lower, on the deeper levels, and yet there's still... Um, you're still also living on the surface where the waves are moving. Now, I can only say that that must have something to do with when Jesus was weeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. Had he really, you know, had he really? And uh, here I know, this is how I thought about it this afternoon. But you never lose faith in God. And you never lose the belief that God is completely in charge and whatever is happening is happening exactly as he wants it to happen. I mean, that's what causes real sadness. And as long as you still really know that God is with you and you haven't lost God and that the divine is always there and nothing has really changed, 
You just experience it all simultaneously. And I, I think it's very important to understand that because otherwise we have an inclination to suppress our own feelings. We have an inclination to think there's something wrong with us. We have an inclination to try to fit ourselves into a, a small box, which is all the ego trying, of Riti trying to make things happen instead of actually just resting in the reality of who we are and allowing it um, to be whatever it's going to be. I, I, Swami's, just the frank honesty of that letter was um, very touching because he's, he's, he's mapping it for us. We're not there yet, but we will be. And we'll remember in the Bhagavad Gita commentary, he has all these instructions for what you do when you, the only karma, you have no karma left and you're living as a hermit in a cave and all you're trying to do as a jivan mukta is, is let go of the karmic memory of having been identified with all those individual forms and how you can do that through meditation and vision and all. He explains it all. It's all in there. When I read that in the manuscript when we were in India when he was writing it, I said, well, this, doesn't, this, this section doesn't really apply to everyone, does it? <laughs> but very seriously he looked at me, well, it will apply to some people and they'll find it useful. You know, I mean, it, it, I was making light, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't hear it. And then, and they will find it useful, he said. So I feel that too. He just he wrote to us about a state that we will all be there, and we will, we may very well remember. And if not, in the the little dramas, you know, even all the way back to my first Christmas at Ananda, oh, I see, many things can happen at the same time. And therefore, it's very important not to get drawn so far off into these vrittis that we lose connection with all the things that are happening at the same time or become frightened. You see what happened to the disciples? This was all, I mean, the, 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 the letter that he wrote the letter at Easter was so exact because there were the disciples. Think about this. They go off with Jesus. They're not used to this. I mean, this man supports them. And, you know, this man is this great power. He stands up to the authorities all the time. He's, he reveals himself transfigured on the mountain. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. You know, they're relying on him. And all of a sudden, he's, you know, uh, distraught in the Garden of Gethsemane, pleading with them, with them, can't you stay up and pray with me? I, I mean, I don't think they were very comfortable with that. I'm sure it was um, a challenge for them to be able to expand their own consciousness to embrace that. You know, Sister Shraddha trying to understand what is it that Master wants of me right now? What's trying to happen here? It's it's all very um, it's all very important teaching, and can't just be turned aside. You know, and of course, Master's consciousness, what Swami writes, is his loving nature and so on. But he was leaving. And Swamiji talked about how hearty he was drinking the green coconuts the night before his Mahasamadhi, and, oh, I'm so happy to have these. And Swamiji looked at his eyes and thought, you're not anywhere in relationship to what you're doing. You're, you're completely somewhere else. You know, so, so we see, there's, there's just so many learnings, so many possible learnings. And intense vairagya is a, is a bob, and it comes, and nothing is... And then, you know, you move out of it, you move into something else. I mean, Narayani said this morning, you know, by the time Easter came, his mood had shifted, his 
I'll use the word bhav, his bhav had shifted, you know, and he was more just embracing what was happening, accepting what was happening. But the other was also true. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was arrested and crucified. Jesus was resurrected. All of it was all true. All of it was true. You can't say some was and some wasn't. Fascinating, eh? So, I think, did I answer it? Okay. Why don't we take a break, and then we'll come back. Okay. Um, while we were having a break, Sai Ganesh made an interesting comment, and I just wanted him to put it onto the record. Um, when you were talking about uh, the multiple levels, where at surface he might be feeling, Swamiji right now, the phase that he is in, at surface he might be feeling this sort of, he might be rejecting the world, but beneath all that he's feeling uh, the joy that has always been with him. I was reminded of his uh, recent talk in Kolkata, where uh, he started off the talk, he was full of joy and smiling, and he was just full of bliss. And then he sang this Bengali song. Uh, the song has a lot of pathos. It, it mm-hmm. talks about, uh, it says, um, this, I, did not, I don't have any other wish in this world. I did not want any of this. All that I needed, all that I wa- ever wanted was to be on your lap. And those are the words of the chant, uh, in this world, Mother, no one. It goes on to say in those lines. In this world, Mother, no, no one, one can, can love, love me. me. Yeah. That's, that's a piece of this song that he was yeah, singing. Yeah, that's a piece of this song. Uh-huh. Uh, but he was completely feeling it, feeling the pathos while he was singing it. But in an instant when he started talking again, you mm-hmm. could feel the bliss again in his face, and he was just projecting that. So it was just very interesting to see the transition uh, in front of the camera, to just see him sing the song and again come back to his speech. Um, I was there in, uh, in the front row, and... It was uh, his singing of that song. I'm, I, I think it is on the film, too. It was quite something in person. There were so many elements that were at play um, because Bengali to Swamiji has always been his favorite language. Um, coming to India as he did when he was, uh, I guess, 32 in 1958 and really discovering the Indian bhav and really discovering... Um, in many ways, what self-realization really was, what Master was really teaching. Swamiji felt that when he got to India, he really understood much more deeply what Master was teaching and also understood that SRF was veering away from it. He saw the, the support for, what he had, for his understanding of Master's teaching. And he, he learned Bengali. Master had he learned a little Bengali from Master. And then when he was in India and was so popular at that time, he was also enormously popular for singing those songs, and he would often sing those devotional songs. Um, I mean, a person who knew his life more knew all of that, and uh, what it meant to him to be in Cal- uh, to be in Bengal, to be in Master's place. And so, when he started singing that, there was there were so many levels, and of course, that also all reminded him of all that he had to go through being expelled from SRF. All he suffered with that everything. And all of that was in the song. I never wanted any of this. All I wanted... I didn't know what the words were. Most of the people in the room were Bengali, so they knew exactly what he was saying. I didn't know. I just knew what it felt like. But I hadn't thought until you said that. Yes, of course. And then he went right into something else. Then we were were having another conversation from what... after what Sai Ganesh said, where... um, Arthur was saying, is, this, was it, is it Swami's karma 
We're talking about this, the state of consciousness where it's, the karma is happening, but if there's no center point of ego identification, then it's just energy that moves. It's not really, it's not really attached to any individual. It's the result of the incarnation. It's the result of the work that's being done. It's the result of the effort to bring light to the world. It's not, un- there's no unlearned lessons in the individual through whom the energy is flowing. So I know when we were even in the middle of, of some of the litigation and there was a, a lot of attack, personal attack on Swamiji and a personal attack to a certain extent on Ananda, some people wanted to say we should introspect and try to see what the karma is here. And Swami was fierce against that. He said, this is not our karma. This is not our personal karma. This is the karma of the cause to which we have given our lives, and it's just running through us. It's not about us. So you know, Jesus, as an avatar, he had no personal karma. So he wasn't being crucified because he had something to learn. Karma is unlearned lessons. Karma is your own identification with your own actions. So when you have an individual at, at Swami's level of realization, um, especially now at the end of his life, you know, I, I, I can't exactly understand you know, everything about this. <laughs> it's putting it very mildly. There's vast sections of this I don't understand. But the sorrow is not personal. Even at the point of the intense vairagya, or for Master, just having had so much so much betrayal and so on. It's the, the, the anguish for him is because of the, um, the fact of that and the suffering that people impose upon himself and his, t- his tender-hearted nature. Master says, as Swami wrote in the Easter letter, he said, Master said, I will return again and again a trillion times if necessary as long as one stray brother is left behind. He's not doing that out of any personal need to prove that he can do it. But, but think how intensely Master feels the suffering of that one stray brother, that he would be willing to move like that. But he's moving with complete freedom. So this is the confusing question of there's the bliss on one level and then there's the other vibration, the other bhav on the other level. Ramakrishna, they said, sometimes would just flip from the divine to the human, the story being told most of all when his nephew, who was his personal attendant, died. And he would weep. He was weeping. Oh, Frida is gone. Who will walk with me on the Ganges in the dawn? Who will bring me, you know, my peeled fruits? Who will bring me, you know, the things that I need? Frida is gone. My friend is gone. And then, just seconds later, he would literally be dancing in ecstasy. Oh, if you could only have seen how beautiful it was when the soul ascended from the body, it was exquisite light, and now he's gone into the infinite. Oh, my friend is gone. And you think that's easy for the disciples? (laughs) You know, they're trying to paste upon the master their own understanding of how he's supposed to behave instead of allowing... Um, the the master, the saint, to show you how they do behave and then have us try to intuit and attune to what they're actually doing. That's why I respectfully but fiercely draw strong, have strong issues with SRF 
because they whitewashed Master. And so as a result, you, you can't grasp on a deep level what that life was really like. Fortunately, because of all their efforts to suppress alternative interpretations, all alternative interpretations are available now. So we're gradually getting a fuller and a more... Di- and Swami's book, his biography, of course, gave us a tremendous amount, and so did John's book. But there's Swami too, you know. And by today, Swami's not in, not in that bhav anymore. You know, and he'll be enthusiastically working on some project or another. But three days ago he was. Contemplating Easter, contemplating all of that, then that bhav comes through. Um, but it's just the flow of energy now. And, and with Master too, he's just showing us, oh, Gyanamata has died, oh, dearest sister. And he weeps over her absence, you know. The, the fl- that's the flow of energy that goes through when two souls who really love each other are separated by death. Amazing, huh? All right, any comments or questions about any of that? It just makes me feel like uh, so much of that is like watching a movie. For them? Am I getting mm-hmm. a picture, right? You mean the way they experience? Yeah, the way they go from, oh, isn't this terrible, and this is so awful, and then just change. And I mean, it, I, There's that's no what, attachment to the flow. Yeah. So it flows easily through them, and that there's, no, there's no vritti created out of it because there's no ego for which, onto which the act, the energy can identify that nothing holds it yeah it just flows also i think that's why the among, among other reasons why the energy can be so sensitive swamiji all of swamiji's feelings are on the surface now mm-hmm. when he you know when he talks about god in any way he he he, be, he he never used to weep in public it was so exceedingly rare for him to allow his emotions to come through exceedingly rare and now it's constant mm-hmm. you know there's just a certain that's what I mean about he presents himself so differently. But also he can't help himself. He just, I mean, but he'll, he breaks down completely just saying, my guru. And you're like, what is he seeing? What is he feeling when he says that? It's very, it's very moving. I commented, I wrote this in my book too, about the difference, the progression from America to Italy to India. He, in America he would speak of, of, often of Yogananda. Um, in Italy he would call him Master. And in India, he calls him my guru. And, and in India, he almost always says my guru. He rarely uses any other way of describing him. And it was just really it was so sweet to watch that, just himself talking about the freedom that India gave him that he just didn't have in America. So everything comes together in the same way. Well, um, anything else about any of that? Um, I want to just make a few more comments about this uh, just, were you going to say something? Oh, Arthur wanted to speak. Okay. Um, so let me try to put the strands together. If Swami was born Jivan Mukta, it means it wasn't a forced reincarnation. You have to speak up a little, <coughs> Arthur, please. If Swami was born Jivan Mukta, that means it wasn't a forced reincarnation. If Swami was, yes. Okay. And in terms of the whole karmic flow and him being the center of being Swami Kriyananda, the incarnation Swami Kriyananda. Kriyananda. Um, does that give the sense that he came 
for the particular mission? I asked him. I've asked him that question on multiple occasions. Um, and and uh, I hope never to come back. He said, I said, you won't, I've said this to him. We've had this co- a conversation like this repeatedly. You know, I don't, I don't want to incarnate anymore, he would say. I would say, well, you only came this time for us. Isn't that so? Well, yes, he says. <laughs> and then he, will, he has often ruefully added, and I will probably do it again, <laughs> no matter how strong. I mean, recently, in a joking way, he was talking about that. I really don't want to incarnate again. I want, I'm just done. I'm finished here. But I know myself. And, you know, the, he, he's never claimed to be Jeevan Mukta, and I am in no position to declare it. But I started thinking about it. I just started thinking about what he's explained. And if, if indeed, as Master has told him, he will be fully liberated in this lifetime, and that's what Master told him, that, you know, you're free. You'll be free. But it won't really come to you. And Master said at the Christmas meditation where Swami was present, you know, there are um, a few siddhas and quite a few jivan muktas who will attain jivan mukta and some siddhas here. And who was in the room? You know, there just there weren't that many souls of that caliber in the room. And I just had to think, well, that must mean, you know, that he, where, with the state of consciousness he had when he came, had to have been extremely highly advanced. And with all due respect, do you think an ordinary man could have done this? And yes, he was only born for the mission. There was nothing left um, for him. I mean, he, he's never said any of those things. Very little as he said those things. He says them more in the last few years than he's ever said them. Um, Brigu said them. Master said them. But he didn't say them himself because it's unseemly in a certain way. But recently he hasn't cared. He just says it anyway. So yeah, it's quite interesting. You know, there's a... I started to write some of this out this morning. Maybe eventually I'll put it in something. Um... When Swami veiled his consciousness a lot more and just made it very hard to perceive who he was. And, and oh, I know what I was going to say. I was reading some, some notes I'd made about, about, Mas- about what things Swami said about Master. Let me think how he put it. Let me, let me just catch this. I can't remember what introduced it. it was, I, these are notes that I have in a file with conversations with Swami about Master. And he talked about how, oh, I know how, how he was putting it. That Master did not distinguish himself from the people around him. When, in Mount Washington, he said at the beginning was like a hotel, that people just came and went. And he said, and people would come, and Master was living with them, and they'd be reading about other saints and Masters and getting so excited about everybody else's teachings. He talked about some people wanted to go to Mount Shasta because they'd heard that there were masters there. They're talking to Yogananda about going to Mount Shasta because they'd heard that there are masters there. And from our point of view, with the, you know, the iconic image of master that has been raised since his passing, um, it seems incomprehensible to us. But Swamiji said master did not assert either his realization, his position, or anything. In fact, he tried to make people relax and be natural around him. That was the phrase that I was looking for. He made a great effort for people to be able to relax and be natural around him because they were much more likely to be receptive 
um, if they could just relax and be natural. And, of course, that's the role. That's how Swami played it out exactly the same way. He, he went to a great deal of trouble, and this is how he articulated it to me, to be a simple, unaffected friend to people. And for most of the history of Swamiji's public life, that's the role that he played. Just completely downplayed everything. He, he, wore, he didn't wear special clothes except for special occasions. He, he never asserted his authority in the sense of creating this persona that made everyone... And, you know, the idea of standing up when he came in the room was absolutely un, out of the question. We'd all just be sitting around, and he'd wander in, and, hi, Swami, and we just... There was nothing. There was no accoutrements of his uh, position. It wasn't really until he went to Italy, you know, in 1998, because the Italians have a, a different bob about these things, that it began to start a little bit. But that's very recently. And uh, that he moved, didn't move there until, was I'm saying 98? Yeah, that was probably when he moved there. It was when the Bertolucci lawsuit ended, is when he pretty much about the time he went. Still in the middle of the SRF case. And uh, went to live there. But the great thing about that was, which I have always mourned, was that you, you, there was no external force to push you into a particular thought form. You, everything that you understood about him was completely your own personal discovery. Because it was just so underplayed that you didn't start with, oh, oh, and then you're sort of trying to make yourself have an experience because you felt like you ought to have an experience. You just lived your life. And, and it was so under the, under the surface. This is, of course, in the 70s. I remember a woman coming up to me who had been there a couple of years, and she sort of said to me like this, I've been watching, and it seems like everything that happens here emanates from Swamiji. <laughs> and my actual response was, yes, but don't talk about it. I mean, and at the time, that was like a sensible response because it was just like, he, it, that's because he didn't really want us to talk about it. And I, even then, I knew how good it was that it was a little under the radar because people then were able to be completely sincere. And some people never noticed, just like the people at Mount Washington never noticed Master. Oh, I'm going to go to this teacher because he's so interesting. Okay, Master would say. You know, because if, if you don't know, you don't know. And what's the point? It's not, this is not about form. So, anyway, there you are. Then you think about Jesus being crucified. It was a challenge. <laughs> think about Jesus weeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. That was a challenge. You know, all of a sudden he's not behaving the way he should. According, he's not behaving according to the teachings he taught me. Whenever I would see people criticize Swamiji for one thing or another on the basis of the principles that they had learned from him, my response would be, hmm, do you think he knows those principles? Where did you learn them? So let's try to think a little bigger here. Who's, who's likely to have the smallest picture here? Okay, anything else about that? That was, was on my mind, so it was not surprising that I found a way to go there. Yes, Adam? I guess um, I was just thinking on the way over here, and maybe you can just tell me to listen to the last class because I have yet to, and I mean to. But um, 
in the interpretation of um, yoga is the neutralization of the vortices of feeling mm-hmm. and how you talked about the um, you know, misinterpretation of it as mind stuff. That Swami's, yeah. Uh-huh. Swami saying that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've, I've heard mind stuff a lot more, I think, than neutralization of feeling. So I guess I'm wondering if, in terms of progressive levels of consciousness and the spiritual path being directional, is that sort of, I, I guess I just had this thought that maybe that's a point that you need to go through first and then comes the neutralization of feeling. No. Or those, in fact, or those the two only different thing, things. One thing that I did not. Um, articulate from that commentary was the mon buddhi ahankara and chitta and it's interesting because you're now telling me exactly why it's there um, the context master talked about and, and the, uh, the way this came out it doesn't matter but master tells the whole story of being challenged by scholarly pundits but then master explains that there are these four dimensions of consciousness and the word vritti is the word that Patanjali actually uses. So Swamiji gives us these four dimensions of consciousness so that we understand what vritti actually is. But it's, a very, it's very interesting to understand those four because they all work together, but it tells you how, how it is. Mon is just pure consciousness. Nothing is differentiated. It's just awareness. Okay? Um, Buddhi is intelligence, that discriminates among the, the vibrations of consciousness and, and identifies. Okay. Um, ahankara is the ego in which you develop a personal relationship with what you're discerning. And then chitta is likes and dislikes, the, the feelings about. So this is how he puts it. If there's a horse, okay, on the level of moan, you don't know what it is. It's a vibration. And it doesn't have a name, and it's not distinct from anything else. You're just perceiving the vibration there. It, and it, you don't break it down more. Buddhi says, oh, I recognize that vibration. That vibration is a horse. But you're still completely impersonal. It's like, there's, I'm, I have consciousness, and this is a vibration, and I name that vibration. That vibration is horse. Ahankara is when the ego self, the, the individual gets involved, and it says, oh, that's my horse. Now, um, Swamiji explains that even up to that point, there's no bondage, because it is a horse, you know, it, it, it exists, it is a horse, and in fact, it might be your horse. It might be your body, it might be your house, it might be your children. You could just identify it. Chitta says, I am so happy that it's my horse. And that's the point at which the vritti, the, the, the ego sets likes and dislikes and becomes bound by what it perceives. So what has to be neutralized is that happiness, unhappiness, like, dislike, positive, negative definition of undifferentiated reality in terms of what it is in relationship to me and how I feel about it. So as soon as you get rid of vritti, you can still have the other three qualities. But you no longer have any dependency, and so you're not pulled out of 
your pure consciousness because you're not living in the dual state that vritti creates. Okay? So when we say reason follows feeling, is another way of saying that this thinking follows feeling? Because in terms of, I'm, I'm just relating it back to the mind stuff comment. The mind stuff comment is a, is a garbled concept. That's the hard part of mind stuff. But anyway, but reason follows feeling because feeling is our fundamental nature. And when feeling gets involved, it, it's, it's more foundational than reason. It's more foundational than reason. So once you have a, a, an emotional bias in a certain direction, you will find reasons to support it even if you're a highly intelligent person in all other respects. Somebody was talking to me recently, and they were talking to me about um, their karmic, you know, the karmic fear that they carry and the inclination to be anxious about this and the need to protect themselves in this way, and then describing other people's realities. My response was, wow, if I had that many biases in place, I would really hesitate to describe anybody else's reality. <laughs> the chances of my perceiving accurately seem really, really low to me. You know, and which is the truth. If you can explain how many feelings you have involved in it, just be really suspicious of how you reason it out after that. Because it's just the chances are really great that, that you're going to corrupt your reasoning. And that's how really intelligent people can do really dumb things and think they're reasonable because there's a, an emotional bias. The vritti is what throws you off. It's not, the, it's not intelligence or intellectual perception or anything because reason follows feeling. Ahankara is not reason. You know, there's, no, it, there's no real reason in this whole thing. Okay? Does that make sense? It's a good question. Interestingly, I never, I never said it, and I kept thinking, oh, I'll just sail past this one, but I guess not. <laughs> All right. I didn't quite finish the sutra we were on. There's just a tiny bit more to say, but I'll save it for next week, and then we'll just go for a couple of more. We'll probably go through the five categories of rittis, which was very interesting. We'll do it, but we'll do it next week. Okay, everyone? Is that all right? Certainly. <laughs>